I'm back again to keep talking about disambiguation in the name statistics argument for the reliability of the Gospels and Acts. Here I want to talk about what I'm going to call narratively unnecessary disambiguations. So we talked about unnecessary clumps. Then I talked about uh, Jesus of Nazareth and Lazarus of Bethany as examples of unnecessary disambiguations. And I think those two were especially important, so I kind of gave them their own video. And now I want to continue that topic of narratively unnecessary disambiguations, or I might say to have a more neutral term, narratively unnecessary qualifiers to a name. I try to use for this part of the argument a pretty stringent definition of narratively unnecessary. The reason that I want to do that is to get rid of what I would think of as noise, evidential noise. To give an example of evidential noise, uh, which should cause us not to use these as examples of narratively unnecessary disambiguations, consider titles. Uh, consider, for example, the title, The High Priest, okay? So, uh, Annas is referred to as The High Priest, and Ananias is also referred to as The High Priest. But Annas is a much more common name than Ananias. If you were wondering which Annas was in view, of course, calling him the high priest does the work of disambiguating. In passing, it avoids any ambiguity about which, which Annas you have in mind. But because his being the high priest is important to the narrative, um, we shouldn't think that he was known as Annas the high priest so that people wouldn't be confused about which Annas it was, just as Ananias wouldn't have been known as Ananias the high priest so that people wouldn't be confused about which Ananias. The title is so important in itself that it's likely to be used either way. That's what I mean by evidential noise. Um, and, and that really is relevant to titles especially. So it would be illicit for me to use um, Annas the high priest is an argument for the historicity of the stories in which he appears or for his historicity because it's a common name but it would also be illicit to conclude that the authors are just sort of throwing uh, you know disambiguators around willy-nilly or to even consider it uh, evidence toward that conclusion because Ananias a less common name is also known as the high priest other examples are a little more subjective, but again, I, I still tried to be pretty stringent. So if some information given about a person is very obviously um, of interest, and it just like immediately springs to mind, not that you have to go out and come up with some wild theory, but it's immediately obvious why this extra information would be of interest then to think of that as being put in there to disambiguate him because otherwise people might be confused or that that was what he was known at as because other people 
might be confused within the culture um, is probably unjustified because that information would be likely to be included in the narrative regardless. So I'm going to give you an example again on each side. Menaean is a, is a relatively popular name. It's not in the tier A, but it's relatively popular. In Acts, the narrator refers to Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, so I'm not going to say, oh, see, you know, he was known as Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, because there were so many other people named Menaean. No, I mean, that's obviously a very interesting piece of information, especially since he appears to be a, a Christian, you know, part of the Christian community. So I think it's just, it could just as well be put in there just as an extra interesting piece of information, though of course it also, it serves the function of disambiguating if the if people are wondering which Menaean. But by the same token, Andrew is not a popular name. It's, it's down there in popularity. Um, according to the Ilan statistics. So in the lists of the 12 or the mentions um, of Andrew, if it says Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother. Now, his brother or the brother of Simon Peter or something like that, that's the type of thing that could be used for disambiguation, the brother of so-and-so. Um, but that Andrew was the brother of this very, very prominent disciple, Simon Peter, is a very relevant piece of information to the Christian community. So that the Christians would come to say, Simon Peter and Andrew is brother, is, um, is very plausible, regardless of the popularity or unpopularity of the name Andrew. So again, I consider that to be evidential noise. So when I'm talking about what is narratively unnecessary. I'm trying to think hard about whether it's it's really not something that just arises in a supernatural way in the narrative. And in fact, when I was preparing this video, I went back and I cut a couple of them out for that reason, as I thought more deeply about them. Um, for example, I've been thinking, you know, Joseph Barsabbas, you know, what is that? So then I thought, well, actually, that's an unnecessary, part of an unnecessary clump. And then once you have that clump, then it becomes necessary to disambiguate him. But if you're just making him up, why would you do that? Which is what I said in the other video I'm releasing today. So he's not, you know, Barsabbas is not a narratively unnecessary, unnecessary disambiguation. It's necessary, but it's necessary because of a, um, aspect of the narrative calling him Joseph instead of calling him Justice, that is not something that the author of Acts happens, has to do, especially if he's inventing him. So I hope you can see the difference here. So now I'm going to list eight narratively unnecessary disambiguations or more neutrally narratively unnecessary qualifiers in the Gospels and Acts according to this more stringent standard, and I'm going to give a short discussion of each of them, because there's only eight, um, about why I consider them narratively unnecessary. And I'm going to start with two for un unpopular names. So these are, you know, like, huh, why, 
why is that in there if this is an unpopular name? And I don't, I don't have um, a theory to, to sell you, okay? So I want to show that I'm being, you know, I'm being honest here. All right, so the two narratively unnecessary qualifiers that are in, you know, the lower levels of popularity, according to those Elon statistics, are Nathaniel of Cana, and that phrase is used by, by John, in John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, and Levi, son of Alphaeus, which is used in Mark. He's the tax collector whom Jesus calls. Um, and then in Matthew's Gospel, he says his name was Matthew. I'm not going to get into. Um, I, I think they were the same person, but I'm not going to get into that right now. The argument's pro and con. But the point is, um, these are not high popularity names. But also, there's nothing about Nathaniel being of Cana that's, you know, obviously of fascinating interest to the uh, audience, nor that uh, Levi was the son of Alphaeus, we, you know, okay, I mean, there's a James the son of Alphaeus, but we don't even know if it's the same Alphaeus. Um, so they're not necessary in virtue of popularity, they're not necessary in virtue of uh, commonness within the narrative, they're not necessary to um, tell something that is intrinsically interesting. They're just kind of there. Now, this is where we have to use our nuanced historical imagination. Things don't just like, boom, okay, that's that refutes that. You know, we're done with that. The arguments are always cumulative on either side. And, um, you know, I'm not shaken by this, especially since they're the, the only two among the eight, so that's 75% even of these narratively unnecessary ones are in tier A or tier B, um, I just regard that as more unnecessary detail that the authors sometimes give. And that's true. It's especially true, by the way, of, of John and of Mark. Um, in fact, I use unnecessary details as a broader category as an argument for the memoir-like nature. John is, in fact, the only gospel author who mentions Cana, and he mentions Cana repeatedly. So, you know, Nathaniel of Cana um, happened to pop into his mind. Doesn't That doesn't concern me, but it's important for me to say, yeah, these are narratively unnecessary qualifiers of a sort of classic kind, telling who uh, somebody's relative was, telling what town he's from, and there doesn't appear to be uh, any particular interest to it, and they happen to attach to uncommon names. All right, now, the other six. Um, I already talked about Jesus of Nazareth and Lazarus of Bethany in a previous week. Go back and listen to that. Um, so those are both quite common names, and you have these classic forms for them. And in the case of Jesus, it's even more interesting because it, there's a distinction between the way the narrator refers to him and the way that the people in the stories refer to him. People in the stories very consistently use some kind of disambiguator for him. All right, so that's two. Um, James the Less. All right. That phrase, the Less, is only 
in Mark. Um, and it's a disambiguation of a disambiguation because it's in the reference to one of the women named Mary who was standing by the cross. It says she was the mother of James the Less and uh, Joseph. Joseph. So, uh, and by the way, we don't know, did the less mean less important, possibly, to distinguish him from James, the brother of Jesus, who became important, or it could mean that he was short. I, I like that idea. Um, all right. But here's the thing. There's no need for that additional disambiguation. Um, I don't think anybody was likely to be confused within the narrative into thinking that this was Jesus' brother. Because if you're referring to Mary, Jesus' mother, why would you say Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, instead of saying Mary, the mother of Jesus? Okay, when, when the fourth gospel uh, talks about his mother being there, he, uh, he doesn't name her as far as I recall, but he said his mother was standing there. Okay, um, so, you know, that's what's, that's what's going to be salient to the audience. Um, it would be really roundabout to call her Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph. So I don't think that's referring to Mary, Jesus' mother. Um, so why even have a qualifier for that James? Okay, he's, he's already related to... Um, He's already related to Joseph. There's no particular reason to to think or even to worry about whether he's a member of the Twelve. Um, it's, it's this thing that Mark just says. And I think that the best explanation is that the name Jacob was quite popular and that he was known as James the Less. You know, maybe Shorty James or something like that. And therefore this unnecessary disambiguation um, arises from the historical situation rather than being something that Mark invents. Okay, that's three. All right. Um, in the speech of Gamaliel in Acts, he refers to Judas the Galilean. Now, this is speech being put into Gamaliel's mouth, and he makes it clear who this Judas was historically, that he led a revolt in the time of the census and so forth. Um, I believe we find a reference to that in, in Josephus. Um, and some people have thought that uh, Luke's just sort of making up the speech of Gamaliel. But the, the term Judas the Galilean, the Galilean, isn't any more necessary to distinguish him from other Judases, given that Gamaliel is talking about him being a rebel at a given point in time. That's that, you know, that picks out a certain historical person. The more likely explanation is that Judas was a very popular name and probably he, he became known as Judas the Galilean. Galileans were, um, they were problem people for the Romans, they, you know, you, you had your your hotheads and revolutionaries coming from Galilee a lot of times. So um, I think that's how he was known. And so I don't think that's made up to call him Judas the Galilean. All right, but it's narratively unnecessary in Acts 
to do that given the historical context that Gamaliel gives to have that phrase, the Galilean. So you can start to see how this, this works. Best explanation is that's how he was known. All right, um, so we have James the Less, Jesus of Nazareth, Judas the Galilean, Lazarus of Bethany. All right, uh, number five, John the Baptist. Now you may say, what? You know, but think about it for a minute. Um, to call him the baptizer, okay? Um, look at it and, and consider it in, say, the Gospel of Mark, which um, many people think of as the first gospel to be written. All right, it describes him. He's baptizing, but there's a difference between saying this guy named John came and he was baptizing and he was uh, doing this and calling on people to repent, etc., etc., um, and then he was imprisoned, etc., etc., and calling in John the Baptizer. Okay. Now, interestingly, in the Gospel of John, um, the the narrator does refer to his activities, and I believe he doesn't even one time refer to him as John the Baptizer. Certainly, there are times when he doesn't, you know, call him anything in particular. And there's no confusion about which John this is. Nobody's going to think that um, in in Mark say that this is you know the son of Zebedee or something like that. Um, he stands out in the narrative in virtue of his activities. So I think the best explanation for this epithet, the baptizer or the Baptist, is that you know because John was a popular name, Johannan, that's how he became known. You know, like we would say, uh, you know, in the in the medieval era or something, John the Baker, you know. So uh, if there are a lot of Johns. All right. And then, so that's one, two, three, four, five. Okay, number six, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, consider this again in the Gospel of Mark, if you think of that as the first gospel. So, you know, he's the first one to put this in writing. Um, the only other Joseph or Joseph in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' brother. And this guy is obviously someone different. He's high-ranking, he's a member of the council, um, and he comes and asks to bury Jesus in his own new tomb. There's not going to be any confusion between this Joseph who he just said you know Joseph a member of the council came at, you know asked Pilate if he could have Jesus body and bury it um of thinking that oh wow you know that's that's Jesus brother um I mean Jesus is from Nazareth it's this place out in the out in the <laughs> it's it's not considered a high-ranking town. It's not, they're not members of the Jerusalem elite, whereas this man obviously is a member of the Jerusalem elite. Um, so it's narratively unnecessary in that gospel because there's not a big clump of Josephs. But Joseph was quite a popular name. And if he was from a town, you know, Arimathea, it's extremely likely that he was known as Joseph of Arimathea. 
and that just arose out of the popularity of the name and the need for disambiguation. So we've got six narratively unnecessary disambiguations and uh, that are of popular names and two narratively unnecessary disambiguations or qualifiers or whatever you want to call them of that uh, fairly you know common form a relative or a place uh, that are of uncommon names so that's 75 percent um, I think having put all these videos into the disambiguation argument I've done enough to show you the power of that in addition to the regular name statistics argument now next time I'm going to return to the paper by Greger and Blaze and start talking about some of their more um, seriously suggested alternative hypotheses of sort of partial knowledge of name statistics by the authors. And uh, I'm going to mention here once more, and it'll, I'm sure it'll come up again later, I've been reading the novel The Spear and the author, Louis DeWall, he just, he just throws disambiguators around like candy. And this is a man who's poured over his Josephus. You can tell that uh, by his uh, use of incidents that, you know, are in Josephus over and over and over and over again. Um, and yet somehow, you know, he didn't uh, tumble to the fact that, you know, if some guy's named Boz, you don't have to call him Boz Barcebulin because Boz is, you know, not a common name, okay? Um, and he's got all of these, you know, I think he's got Ephraim Bartubal and um, what he's basically just doing, uh, he has some that aren't disambiguated. I think it's about half and half, but they, they don't, that are and that aren't, you know, but they don't track at all the popularity of the names. Even when there's only one character by that name, what he appears to be doing is just when he's trying to have historical verisimilitude, his way of trying to have historical verisimilitude is to put in bar so-and-so, okay? So that's the moral he's taken from the Gospels and, and possibly from Josephus as well, is okay, in those days they, they called people blank bar blank. And, and so it's interesting to see how his notion of, of verisimilitude doesn't involve an understanding of name popularity as reflected in his disambiguators. So you can see why with my discussion today of narratively unnecessary disambiguators, the fact that 75% of them are of you know, tier A or tier B names is actually significant when we compare it even to a well-researched historical novel. All right. Come back next time to learn more about why Gregor and Blaze have not refuted the name statistics argument.